Don't we love technology? When it goes on the blip, everything stops, even our singing. Mind you, I was just thinking, I was just saying earlier to someone that we're so blessed here with our technology, but also our technology experts. And, um, and I might say our musicians and our singers, we're really blessed. And uh, there's just been somewhere recently where I guess I went with greater expectations. And um, can I say the technology and the singing was a disaster? And that's what I'll say. So um, maybe really appreciate um, the folks who are here who arrive early and practice and get everything set up and, and uh, do that as a willing service unto the Lord. And, and even when we have glitches, um, they're on top of it and, uh, and we can work our way through that. Let's open the scriptures to this text you see on the screen here, First, Second uh, Corinthians 12, and we're going to be reading from verses 1 to 10. Don't be saying ouch all the way through it, even though the picture I've got up there is reasonably graphic. Um, you will all know that experience, especially for those who have had anything to do with roses. Okay, First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, sorry, chapter 12, and we'll read from verses 1 through to the end of verse 10. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. May God add blessing to his word this morning. You know, one aspect of life that we generally find hard to accept is when bad things happen to us, especially when everything's going okay. And like the culture around us, we tend to see negative things as hindrances that must be shunned and eliminated from our lives at all costs. We don't really gel with the concept that negative things can in any way be God's tool for our good and for his glory. We don't gel with that, do we? 
after all, it is true that most of us want to be physically fit. We want to be emotionally strong. We want to be spiritually healthy. And even relationally and socially positive and strong. We want to be right in all those things, don't we? And some of us will go to great lengths. And I hope many of us, all of us, put, even put disciplines in place in our daily lives so that we will be strong and positive and health, have healthy bodies and healthy minds and healthy souls and have healthy social lives. We put those things in place and we should do. We generally do what it takes to reduce the possibility of becoming flawed, weak and fragile in any one of those areas. We really do. And that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing to do that. Joshua goes to the gym. That's a good thing. Some of us have to watch what we eat because of health issues. And that's a good thing. You could go down the list. That's good things. It's not bad in and of in and of itself to have these disciplines and to pursue healthiness holistically but the problem is folks the problem is we love being good stewards and we'll be proactively good stewards of what God has given us but the problem is when all this good stuff when we are strong and when we are healthy and resilient and all those things that we have talked about in this good and positive environment, a huge problem can arise. You see, when all is good and we become so confident and we become so self-absorbed in pursuing wellness and wholeness in all these areas, that pride deceitfully creeps in. And you know what it does? When pride creeps in, it destroys our confidence in the Lord. It wrecks it. Our expertise, our abilities, our knowledge, and even our opinions, they can be good, they can be excellent, owing to our pursuit and the energy that we've put into gaining such strength. But in our pursuit of these good, healthy things, we can become prideful and overly focused on ourselves. And because of that, the Lord in His grace can give us a thorn in the flesh to minister to us, to bring a right focus back on himself. And this is where we can be immensely challenged as we struggle with this God-given thorn in the flesh hindrance. We struggle because we see this thorn Whatever design, by the way, whatever design, whatever size, whatever shape it may be in, and it comes in a multiplicity of ways, we see them as weakness, as a weakness, and as a hindrance to our idea of positive progress. We struggle to see how God's grace, along with his thorn, whatever it may be, can be positive. How can they be friends that work together to bring about glory to God and goodness in our lives? How can they be friends? 
Yet as we look over history, and I pray as you look back in your own lives, the ministry of the thorn, can we call it, the ministry of the thorn has helped countless numbers of God's people down through the years, and I'm sure has helped you as well. So how does this thorn ministry bring about God's glory in our lives? Well, here in this section of Scripture that we have read, we can learn from Paul's experience of the thorn. We can learn why it came to him, who delivered it, and what it accomplished. Perhaps we might come also to understand how God has used his thorns in our lives. Maybe that we have despised and we have considered nothing but detrimental in our lives. Maybe we can come to view them as to be God's thorns and so that we can be thankful. Anyway, so let's have a look at our first point. A heavenly experience is verified. We see this in verses 1 to 4. And so we're going to just track through uh, this topic, this subject, this section in Corinthians. Um, remember that Paul well could have included this experience in these verses with all the other experiences that we looked at last week and week before. And um, because he's defending his apostleship to these recalcitrant few believers back in Corinth who were still doubting his apostleship and doubting his authority, he could have included this with all those other negative challenges. But as we have learnt and hear as well, Paul loathes to make mention of any of his personal experiences which he repeatedly calls foolishness or foolish boasting. But as he says in verse 11 of this chapter, that what the Corinthians had did, they had forced his hand to stoop to take such levels and to make a fool of himself, he refers to that, through his boasting. He considers it foolish. And so far we have seen how Paul reluctantly and with difficulty boasts about his sufferings, but here in this section he goes to another level completely. Here Paul finds it far more difficult to describe or boast in this positive, this time positive, spiritual experience of visions and revelations of the Lord. The pressure on Paul to make mention of this heavenly experience could well have been given to Paul, by the way, for two reasons. It could be more, but this is the two that I come up with. The first one could well have been was to match the false teachers back in Corinth, remember, because they called themselves apostles, but they were false apostles. And they came in with their false teaching. And what better way to ratify yourself as a spiritual leader than to say, but God told me so. Or I had a vision. This was an in thing of the culture in the Greek culture of that day, was to be having, even outside the church, was to be a visionary, to have these mystical experiences. And soon someone spouted that off. Oh, wow, he was up there and you were down here. And this is what was happening. And so Paul could well have presented this to refute the teacher's claims of God told me or I've received a word from the Lord or a vision from God which no gullible believer, believer in that day and sad to say no gullible believers this day would have the, have the nous of discernment to challenge by the way people seem to be 
afraid to challenge such announcements from anywhere. Don't be. Challenge it. Or secondly, it could have been that this heavenly experience is recorded here by Paul so that, so that we may see how this vision, this revelation that Paul had and was given, he's recorded it so that it shows the potential of the pride and the self-confidence it breeds rather than resting and relying on God's grace. So it could have been both those. But as we consider this supernatural experience, we must realize that Paul was, he was not new to visions, you know. Actually, in the book of Acts, apart from this one, there are six other visions that Paul was given by the Lord. We could actually call him a visionary in the true sense of the word. It's a bit different from what we call visionaries today, right? Paul was a visionary. But this one was the mother of all experiences. As a matter of fact, as one commentator has said, he said, the most intimate and sacred of Paul's religious experiences as a Christian is recorded in this section. And I believe he's onto something there. And But Paul shows his reluctance. He shows his embarrassment at having to go public on this. And, and, he sh- and he shows that to us by referring to himself, and you would note this if you're a, 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 a reader, that he refers to himself in the third person. You see that? I know a man, etc. I know such a man. I speak on behalf of such a man. So he refers to himself as in the third person. He's embarrassed about bringing any attention to himself. And then more significantly, he only calls attention to the supernatural experience 14 years after it happened. Now, that's a while, isn't it? So what do we learn from this reluctant account of Paul's vision and revelation? Well, not much really. We don't learn much. And, and that's a very important point on this account. We do learn that... Um, these visions and revelations that he had were of the Lord. That's what we do learn. They weren't no figment of imaginations or some vision in the night that he had had all on his own. They were, they were of the Lord. They were true revelations where God uniquely allowed Paul to be caught up into the, into the third heaven, the place of God's abode. Even Paul can't tell exactly whether this was an in or out of the body experience, whether he was just dreaming it, that it was so real it was like reality. He was very vague, actually, on the details. He could not even express what he heard or what he saw because he was not permitted to do so. It was a private revelation for his ears only, actually. But his hand is forth. And on top of that, even if Paul wanted to articulate what he heard and what he saw, they were inexpressible. They couldn't be described. They were unable to be understood by, in human terms. It was beyond human comprehension. A little bit like trying to explain the technology of computerization to a, a pre-Stone Age tribal people group who were completely bereft of word power to understand such a phenomenon. 
They could not be comprehended by humanity. You know, was it angels' voices? Or was it the very voice of God himself? Or was it both? Paul gives no such details on these matters. He gives, gave no details who he saw, what he saw. And so the reader can actually be left wondering more about what is not told than what is. We have the next one up there which says, tells us the only thing that Paul could tell his readers was that God knew the experience was absolutely true. He knew it was absolutely true. It's mentioned twice in verses 2 and 3. So this vision, this revelation that he had, it was not like a Poseidon vision or revelation the false prophets of Corinth and even in our modern day have on spout on about. Nothing like that at all. A very big difference is seen in today after some person or people or, or even a woman claim of some divine experience. You've heard of them. I went to heaven and back. And the first people they tell, those kind of people, is the publisher so that they can get a book written and make heaps of money. Check out Kuron. You'll find heaps of them down there. God told me this. God spoke to me. And so off they go and write a book and they go and tell the public. One such a person is a lady named Mary C. Neal. You might not have heard of her. She's made thousands of DVDs, books. Ms. Mary C. Neal supposedly was on a river rafting trip and tipped out God's providence and she drowns and then she recounts or supposedly drowns and then she recounts her peace and tranquility that she experienced and then I end quote she felt, felt the, the peeling of her soul being taken away from her body and then she enters a large hall with a dome in it and she meets and speaks with people that she has known from eternity. Really? Is that true? Then she also reports that this experience she learned answers to some of the big questions in life. I really enjoyed this. I laughed when I, I saw it. And some of the big questions in life, she learnt the answers to. The, one of the questions is, does God love us? Why do bad things happen to good people? Is there life after death? In other words, my trip to heaven and back, she says, she doesn't say, but this is what we can say and deduce from this, my trip to heaven and back has enabled me to tell you the answers. So go buy my book, please. You've got to be joking, right? You watch her on YouTube. She's got a promo there. You know, she sounds genuine. She looks very nice. She's a mature woman, sincere. But she and others like her are frauds, hucksters who only want your money. Folks, if you want to know the absolute truth about any questions of life or about heaven itself, the only heavenly vision you need and can experience before actually going there is in the Bible. There is nothing on this earth beyond that God has revealed 
of all that we need to know about him and salvation and about heaven and about hell, there's nothing on this earth beyond his inspired word. Okay, if you do have a vision or a dream in the night, just don't pay too much attention. It's only second or third best. And if it doesn't line up with the scriptures, throw it out. So we have all that we need to know revealed to us about all these things, all the answers to life in the word of God. And it's true. You know why it's true? Because God, who cannot lie, he is the truth. So why even think about being captivated by some visionary other than what the scriptures tell us? So what on earth was Paul going to do with his non-profit experience? What's he going to do with it? You know, especially after all, it was kept private for 14 years. Imagine that. Keeping it quiet and to himself for 14 years. Shall I go out, Paul probably thinks, and trounce these false prophets with a mother of all experience, which they will never be able to match. I'll beat them. Is that what he's going to think? This brings us to our second point. The challenge to boast or not to boast. You see this in verses 5 and 6. And so far from promoting himself, Paul hates the idea of even making mention of this heavenly vision and revelation. And as I said before, and he, and he shows his reluctance by distancing himself from self-promotion uh, from this by, by continuing to speak in the third person on behalf of such a man, he says in verse 5. On behalf of such a man. And so why does he do this? He does this in order to be only seen as a passive bystander in all this. A passive bystander. In other words, Paul had nothing to do with it. He did not make it happen. He did nothing in his life to earn this wonderful experience, no doubt that it was. He did not even choose to have this spiritual experience. Paul understood that this heavenly vision was uniquely under the sovereign hand and power of God. God granted this to him. And because of this divine act of grace, we can call it, Paul was not going to in any way, shape or form take one ounce of credit or kudos from it. That's how it should be, right? Do you take credit for the revelation of God's grace to you in bringing you to faith? You say, oh, well, I earned it. No, 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 you don't do that. We're sinners saved by grace. That's it, period. We didn't earn it. God initiated this whole thing. And he's allowed us to experience it and to respond to it in faith. And so the only thing that Paul would brag about was his weakness as he had done in prior verses, remember? All those negative things. He bragged about his weakness. That's what he was going to do with it. That's what he used this for. That's what he brought it to attention and the written inspired word for. You see, the spiritual experience that Paul had, as in this text here, it was not up for display to increase Paul's name or fame. 
faithfulness that pulls ears and eyes and heart only. Period. But Paul says here, and I want to paraphrase the beginning of verse 6, and even if I did go all out and use this for my benefit, you're saying that, just in case, just imagine if I did go out and use it for my own personal benefit or credit, for my standing in the community maybe, for my accreditation before men, if, if I did use it for that, every word that I have told you is still absolutely true. But I'm not using it for that. I will not do that. And here is why. Here is why. And this is what he says at the end of the verse. I would never promote myself using this supernatural experience. Why? And here we have the, second, the next slide up. So that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Verse 6. That's humility in action, right? That's a bit different from today, self-appointed prophets and visionaries and dreamers, right? Even the modern word of faith guy will, will, will stand up and say, God told me this and uh, has spoken a word to me. And so what does everyone do? Have a tendency to do, oh, wow, this is a holy man. He's up there, we're down here. Paul wasn't going to do that. Paul says, shall I use this heavenly vision as a boast to increase my validity as apostle, as a man of God? No, I will not. But I mention it to draw your attention to something else. And this is where we have our third point coming up on the screen. Suffering and God's grace go hand in hand. This is what he brought it up for. You see, nowhere in all of Scripture does God unfold his purposes for the suffering in the lives of his people than it does in this passage. So here, we, what we see in the crucible of Paul's suffering, we learn how God uses this to bring about his purposes in the lives of his children. And we have point A here, to keep believers humble. See that in verse 7? And so what Paul does here, he links this heavenly revelation and the vision that he has experienced 14 years ago with what it is to follow in our text. We see that with the link word because. It's a very important word. In other words, because of the impact and the impression and the effect the surpassing greatness of this revelation would have on him, there was a danger. An environment was created. There was a danger. And that danger was a potential for him, the great super apostle Paul, for him to become prideful and conceited. Imagine that. Yes, even Paul. So this thorn was given him to keep me from exalting myself, it says in the text. Paul knew that in himself there, was, there dwelleth no good thing. He says that in Romans 7 verse 18. He knew what was in it. It's good to know yourself, isn't it? Sometimes we pretend we're someone else, something else other than what we are. But Paul knew himself. He knew that no good thing in his humanness, in his flesh, dwells in him. The unredeemed aspect of himself. He knew that even as a redeemed sinner, the urge to be proud was always lurking beneath the surface. And I think we need to realize this is the case ourselves, folks. So a thorn in the flesh was given him. 
keep it in check. To keep that potential pride and that selfishness in check. Now, there is much debate what this thorn in the flesh was. Some say it was an eye defect. Some say it was a speech impediment. Others suggest some form of epilepsy that he had. It also may well have been demonic oppression that weighed heavily upon Paul, and no doubt it did. After all, we'd read in the early chapter that the deepest of all his concern was for the churches. And so this deep concern may well have been a, uh, picked up on by one of Satan's angels and he was oppressed with this to the point that it was unbearable for him. We don't really know. Whatever the thorn was, it was, it was not insignificant. Especially when we know the significant physical suffering that Paul experienced that we have read earlier in the chapter or the chapter before. That kind of suffering seems to be a turmoil that was part and parcel of Paul's everyday life. So it was over and above this. It was something that tormented him tremendously. But what is most important for us to to know here is that Paul sees this thorn given to him as a work of Satan and a work of God simultaneously. You see that? It's important to see that. So who was behind this bad negative hindrance in the life of Paul? Was it God or was it Satan? The answer is both. That's interesting, isn't it? The answer is both. But God was in control. I love that part. God was in control. He was the prime mover. He was not going, he was not going to allow this, his redemptive plan for the world to go off track by allowing his appointed apostle to become consumed with pride. God depended on a humble man to humbly minister and have the right heart attitude before God. And so God gave him a thorn in the flesh. We have similar instances of this in the the, the life of Job. Remember Job? God allowed Satan to smite Job. You can do what you like with him. God said to Job, the only thing you cannot do is take his life. So within the perimeter of God's sovereign will, Satan had a heyday on Job and here on Paul. So God permitted one of Satan's messengers. That's what the word means there, actually. That's what the word means there. A messenger from Satan, one of we know that uh, a messenger from Satan is the same word as uh, angel. And so it wasn't a good angel or Satan's messenger was, would be a demon. And so here we have Paul suffering under this thorn. You know, Satan wasn't the lone ranger agent here. You must understand that. He was not and never is in control. His days have been done. 
Folks, if this drastic action should impress on us anything, it should teach us how seriously God hates pride and loves humility to be governing in the lives of his people, right? That's what it should teach us. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 12, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. The Apostle Peter affirms this in in 1 Peter 5 and 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Dear folks, let us be very, very careful when seemingly negative things happen to us that we do not pridefully treat them with disdain and contempt. Why? Why should we not do that? Because those seemingly negative and difficult circumstances may be, not always the case, may be the very tool that God is using to keep you being consumed with pride which will wreck your life as a testimony to God and his servants. But there's another reason why this happened, and we'll see that up on D. It's to draw from us intercessory prayer. So this thorn in the flesh was given to Paul to keep him humble, and was also, we see, it drew from him prayer. And we can relate this to ourselves. So although this thorn in the flesh was was a messenger from Satan, Paul did understand, as I've said, that it ultimately came from God. So what this meant to Paul was that if God had given it to him, I love the logic here. We should be logicians. But Paul understood that if God had given it to him, God could also take it away. That's good good logical, biblical thinking, right? Understanding the sovereignty of God, God could also, if he so wished, take it away. So what does he do? He prays. He prays. Paul prays on three separate occasions. In other words, this wasn't an everyday prayer that he said that he came to the Lord about. He doesn't he didn't persist, as it were, in prayer day after day, month after month, week after week. No, no. Specifically it says he prayed three times. We don't know how close together or far apart they were, but he prayed three times. And so he prays three times that the Lord might permanently remove this thorn in the flesh that was hindering him because that's what he's seen it was it's a hindrance to me i could be a whole lot better off without it this heavy torment that weighed upon him you know like the lord jesus he prayed do when he was oppressed he was oppressed He was distressed. He never, in those times, attempted to bind his emissary of the devil. He never went to casting out a demon. The Lord Jesus in the garden, he appeals to God to remove it from him. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done and so Paul like the Lord drew near to the Lord in his most intense pain that's the best place to be on times like that right you know many of us have been seriously ill or maybe have been brought to a near death experience 
at some point or other, whether it be a road accident or whether it be or whatever. Some of you know the pain of a heart attack or an organ failure. Some of you know illness where, where death is a real possibility and a potential outcome. At some level we'll know that. You know, I've been there. You may have been there. And I find the first thing that you do in situations like that is you humble yourself and pray. That's a good thing, right? That's a good thing. A very good thing. You even may feel guilty. Oh, Lord, I don't pray in the good times like I do now, but, Lord, I'm pouring my heart at you now. I'm in pain. I'm suffering. I don't know what the future is. I may sick. I may die. I may leave my wife and family. I don't want to die late. Lord, that's a good thing to pour your heart out to the Lord like that. It humbles. That's, that's a sign of a humble person. A proud and arrogant person will just cast it off as being something that just happens. Oh, how sweet it is to rest in the Lord and to put your heart, pour your heart out to him in times like these. You see, you, in times like those, you have a fresh vision of how, how brittle life is and how, how your health and well-being are completely in the hands of God. So what do you do? You pray. You draw near to God and pray like you never would if you were not in that place of suffering. You are humbled, so you pray. Of course, this event in Paul's life also reminds us that all sickness and trauma and suffering is not necessarily God chastising us for some sin in our lives, which some people teach. No, that's not the case at all. It's not always a case of God chastising us. Have a think of this one. It may well be the very tool that God is using to prevent us from entering into sin. Right? And also we can learn that it's not always God's will to heal. Even the most spiritual and prayerful of all believers know. We're singing a hymn today written by Fanny Crosby. You know how many hymns that she wrote? 800 hymns. And all of them she wrote when she was blind. I think Fanny Crosby, when she became blind, the learned of her blindness... What a hindrance, what a detriment to my life. For her good and God's glory and our good here, we're still singing her hymns today. So did God answer Paul's prayer? Absolutely. Though the answers were very different than what Paul asked. And we come to see here another reason why a thorn in the flesh is giving. It's to display his grace and power. We see this in verses 9 and 10. And so God's answer to Paul's request was, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, God wanted the thorn to remain in place. Why? Because God knew that it is only when Paul totally trusted Christ for everything in his life, including the ability to serve and to minister, would God's power be effective. You see, folks, God's grace is not only powerful and effective in saving us, it is equally powerfully and effective in sustaining us. But we struggle to take hold of that truth. 
We tend to think that God's grace has done its work. Oh, praise the Lord, I'm saved. I can remember years ago, etc., etc., when the Lord revealed to me that I was a sinner and I needed a Savior and I got down on my knees and I trusted in Christ and I poured out my heart, Lord, I'm a sinner, save me. And wonderful floods of joy came over my soul. We can remember that occasion, or we should do, and I hope you do. And we can say, once I was blind, but now I can see. And so we tend to think that God's grace has been enacted in our lives and then it kind of takes a back step and we've got to step in and take over. We slip into now it's my turn kind of thing. Now God needs my humanness, my energies and my expertise and my resources to come alongside and make God's grace completely effective in my life and in the lives of others. That's how we tend to think, even though unintentionally. It's our humanness taking over. And as a result, our trust in God's grace is only partial because we also trust and look to our own strength simultaneously. Well, Paul had to learn this. God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. God's grace and suffering, folks, go hand in hand. In other words, the real work and effective power of God in your life and in mine in, in our service, it demands a resignation of depending on your own power or abilities or expertise or strength. A resignation of that. It was when Paul understood the truth of this, he stopped asking for the thorn to be removed. He only asked for it three times. You see, he understood the truth of this. This wasn't why it was a constant prayer day after day. This wasn't something for him to be persistent in prayer in because he knew that the power of God is effective through his weakness. So instead of asking for it to be removed, you know what he did? He thanked God for it. You see that? He thanked God for it. He also moves from the singular thorn to the plural he sees this as something that goes further than just this particular issue that was troubling him. He now glories and delights and is content in all the, not just the one weakness, but the weaknesses and the insults in the hardships and the persecutions and the difficulties. Why would he do that? Simply because Paul wanted above all else, above all else, for the power of Christ to rest or dwell in me. That word dwell there has the idea of pitching a tent. And so this means that Paul wanted to be enveloped in the power and ability of God more than any other puny strength that he could offer. Otherwise, he would become prideful in it. And if it meant enduring all these difficulties and troubles, then he was willing to bear them all to his death, which he did. You see, folks, Paul learned that God's grace was totally sufficient, for he writes, when I am weak, then I am strong. Just in closing, as we digest all this and ponder the difficulties and seeming hindrances in our lives as, as Christians, some of you are going through them now, some of you are experiencing them now, and we will all experience them from time to time. The trials come. James tells us that. Not if they come, but when they come. 
We need to ponder that. And by the way, if you're not a Christian here today, where do you stand in all this? If you're not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will also suffer difficulties and very, of varying kinds to a lesser or greater degree. So how do you handle that? They're not significant. They're not insignificant, I should say. Don't just palm them off as just something of chance or this is what life spews out to us. Can I charge you this morning that if you're not a Christian, rather than laugh them off as some random chance thing, I ask you to consider that God is trying to get your attention through them. He does that. He's allowed to do that. He's sovereign over everyone's life. Whether it be a family breaking up or whether it be a car accident or whether it be an illness or whether it be a job loss, whatever, God is in control. He knows all about things, about everyone, even your unredeemed life. And in grace, he's left you here and he's giving you opportunity and he's trying to get your attention for you to turn to him through his word. So don't just throw those things off as random chance things. He wants you to see him and view him and trust him as your savior. Otherwise, you will only ever know him as your judge and that will be one heavenly and eternal experience that you will not want. But as believers, may we do something serious as well. May there be repentance in our hearts. And as we look back at all those difficulties and those trials, you know, whatever design or size or shape they have come in and that maybe still are in, let us see them as God in grace working with us to produce humility. If you have never done that, how about starting today? To produce in us a resignation of prideful thinking and human strength so that we may be enveloped in the effective power of God. Trust God's word would be a blessing to us this morning. Can we stand? I want to close with a, a benediction uh, from Second Peter chapter 1 and verses 2 and 3. And the word of God says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And may the Lord add his blessing to us, each one, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.